good to see all of you out uh, to worship here today. How many of you, including our students, are working hard on your New Year's resolutions? Let me see your hands. All right, some of you are. Okay, that's good. I have resolved this year to eat more ice cream than I did last year. <laughs> and I have no need of motivation for that. It's just going to happen. But you know, when people put their resolutions together, there's... There's some things that are pretty common to almost in everybody's list. A lot of times it's work out more, lose weight, spend less, enjoy life more, quit smoking, things like that. But the problem is the experts tell us that come February, 88% of us have already quit pursuing our resolutions. We've just kind of given up and gone back to the way we did it last year. I hope you're not going to be part of the 80%, but I have some really bad news for you. And the bad news, according to Forbes, is that only 8% of people who make resolutions will actually keep them the entire year. So I'm not even sure why we make resolutions with that kind of a failure rate. And I'm not here to make you kind of feel down or discouraged or just give you permission to write off your resolution and say, ah, he said it wouldn't work, so I'm going back to the ice cream bucket again. But um, I do want to suggest to you, though, that there is one resolution that if we could keep this resolution, I believe would help us fulfill all of the others. And not only fulfill all of the others, but it would really change our lives. And it's just one. It's just one. And that one is found in 1 John chapter 2. So if you want to turn open or on your Bibles, depending on what type you use. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6. While you're doing that, I'll welcome all of you who are watching online. I don't know a lot of our global partners watch online, and that's you. We're so glad you're with us. 1 John chapter 2 verse 6, very simple verse. John writes, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Let's read it aloud together. Ready? Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. <clears throat> so there's the resolution. The, revolu the resolution, and it's also a revolution, is to live life like Jesus did. To live life like Jesus did. You do that, and you will... Indeed, fulfill all the other good and worthy resolutions. You do that, and you'll have a sense of completeness in your life. Now, let me make one thing clear. You cannot live like Jesus on your own. So if you students or adults try to live like Jesus on your own, you don't have to wait till February to fail. <clears throat> you'll fail by this evening. This can only be done in the power of the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. But it can be done. It's not a one and done. It's a process. But we can actually grow in our relationship with Christ. And just like the real disciples, there will be times when we'll be, we'll be so great, so victorious, so living like Jesus. And there's going to be moments when we kind of fall backwards and blow it. But one of my favorite statements I heard years ago that I've kept in my mind and heart is that God is a God of new day starts. And so when we blow it, we can get back up again and start again. God never gives up on us. And we should never give up on ourselves. And we really shouldn't give up on others either. But how do you do this? How do you live like Jesus? 
That's what we're going to be talking about over the next couple months as we go through three sermon series based on the Gospel of Mark. And this first one, we're calling it, we're calling it Reset. Because at the beginning of the year, I feel like I need to reset my life. And today we're talking about resetting our focus. We're journeying through the Gospel of Mark, so make sure you turn there now with me. Mark chapter 1. And we are going to get set for our first journey. We're going to refocus this morning. We're going to refocus. And I've got several things that I want you to refocus on, that I want to refocus on, as um, I and we begin this journey together. So Mark chapter 1, I'm going to jump right into the middle of it. Jesus has just come on the public scene with his ministry. He's like a light in a dark world, and he brings good news. Mark records some of his very first words in verse 15. He said, the time promised by God has come at last. He announced, the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me. Now I'll show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. Once you write down the first thing we want to focus on, try to put it in kind of a personal way. You can stylize it how you want. But simply, by God's help, can't do it on our own, I aim, that's the focus, by God's help, I aim to daily practice. So you got to do this every day. Resetting my focus on God's purpose for my life. God's purpose for my life. Because that's what those verses I just read are about. Now, it doesn't matter what your vocation is, what you do. All of us, if we're followers of Christ, have the same purpose. Now, it works itself out differently in all of us, but we all have the same purpose. Before we talk about what that purpose is, however, I want you to notice that in the passage, Jesus called his disciples follow him. He chose them. Jesus does not take volunteers. The reason Jesus doesn't take volunteers is because when you volunteer, you always retain a little bit of independence. Just the idea of being a volunteer means that I can also quit. And so in the Gospels, when people would come and volunteer to follow Jesus, he would always turn the volunteer request around to an invitation. And the invitation was always one that demanded they resign their independence. They resign their freedom. And that they come under his authority and become dependent on him alone. Now, we love our volunteers at Wooddale Church, by the way. All right? But it doesn't work the same way in the kingdom. In the kingdom... I don't just show up and say, hey, Jesus, I'll give you an hour today. In the kingdom, God says, no, I want all of you. If you're going to follow me, I need all of you. Every ounce of your life. Tim Keller writes also that the reason Jesus does this is because oftentimes when we approach him with an attitude of, I'm here to follow you, we also come with an agenda. That is, we want to follow Jesus on our terms. And all of us have a tendency to try to manipulate Jesus. Anybody besides me try to do that? It's called prayer. 
So oftentimes our prayers are really an effort to manipulate God rather than submit to what God has already said. So Keller writes and he says, too often we want to be like the Jesus we fashion on our own terms. And that Jesus, Keller says, will never transform our lives. I've got to come on his terms. On his terms, he will transform my life. He will change my life. So first of all, we're chosen by God. And I would rather be chosen than a volunteer. Because it's just something unique when you've been chosen. Somebody who actually wants you. They want you on their team. Paul talks about this in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Let me just remind you of it. He says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Now, everybody here has faults. None of us are holy in and of ourselves. What makes us faultless and what makes us holy is Christ. Christ in us, Christ dying for us. So we've been chosen by God into this awesome position. I've shared with you before, my childhood was not very easy. And uh, I was kind of clumsy and uncoordinated as a kid. Didn't fit in the culture very well coming from the mission field. And had a hard time uh, with things athletic when I was young. And I remember so many times in gym class when they'd line us up against the wall and pull out the captains and they picked their team almost always being picked last. How many of you know that experience? Why don't you just hate it? Oh, man, because you know you're not really being picked last. You're just leftovers. What do we do with you? And it's really humiliating when, you know, the team that it's their turn and you're the one that's supposed to pick says to the other team, you can have them, right? God doesn't do that to us. Everybody here is a first-round draft pick when it comes to God. So don't, you know, it doesn't matter what the world thinks of you or how the world treats you guys at school, students. The fact is God chose you. God wants you. You're number one. Paul says God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. It gives God a pleasure to choose us. You know, book of Hebrews says that for the joy Jesus endured the cross. For the joy of what? For the joy of choosing us. For the joy of saving us. It gives God great pleasure, even though it cost him great pain, to bring us back into the family, so to speak, and to bring us into a oneness with him. So, Paul says, we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. So what has he chosen us for? Well, he gave it away in verse 17. He said, come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. There are three aspects to what all of us have been called to. This is the purpose of every disciple. And they are, number one, you and I have been chosen to follow him with our lives, with our lifestyle. We're to follow Jesus. Secondly, we've been chosen in order to be changed by him. He wants to change us. We're not perfect and we'll always need changing until we come before the Lord someday in heaven. And thirdly, he's chosen us to be on mission with him. He wants us to be on mission with him. Now, he does this through three primary avenues in our lives, all right? So he wants me to follow him. He changes me and be on mission with him, first of all, in our thoughts and our ideas. Secondly, in our words. We'll see this as we go through Mark. And thirdly, in our actions. So he wants me to follow him in my 
thoughts, words, deeds. He wants to change my thoughts, words, deeds. And he wants me to be missional, be concerned about what he's concerned about in my thoughts and words and deeds. Last fall, I, we did a series here, Won't You Be My Neighbor? We talked about how important it is for us to build relationships with our neighbors so that they, they experience the personality of Christ living through us so that we can build legitimate friendships and along the journey share who Christ is and what he means to us. And I encourage you to get that book on neighboring. We still have some at Lydia's. And uh, my, my hope is that you would take it seriously. Now, Marsha and I practice this at, at Christmas time, and we want to continue with our neighbors. But there was a couple in our church, uh, Dave and Lisa, who, who took it really seriously, and they invited 75 people to their home for dinner. Can you imagine? 75 of their neighbors to come over for dinner. Now, the question is, did anybody come? So I want you to listen to their faith story. This is Dave and Lisa. I'm Lisa. And I'm Dave Schmid, and we've been attending Wooddale for about 20 years now. That's crazy. Well, in November, um, when Pastor Dale was talking about neighbors and your neighborhood and really getting to know those around you, it sort of um, rekindled something that we had done a number of years ago, and that was um, we used to have a, an annual Christmas party that we invited our neighbors to, and we realized it had been a number of years. Like so many things, we got really busy, and that just kind of fell off the annual plan. And so this year, as we, as we thought about it, we said, you know, we really should do that again. The thing for me is I actually bought the book, <laughs> the neighborhood book that Dale uh, recommended. So I just kept thinking, we don't know our neighbors very well. I looked at the addresses and picked out about 75 people to send an invitation to, and 25 people showed up, and you never know. Um, in the past, some, one time we had two people come, but those two people were meant to be there, and it was awesome. And one time we had 60 people come, which was crazy, but it was also awesome. We really try to live our lives you know, on mission for Christ in a lot of different ways, and for us, one thing that that involves is utilizing our home. Mm -hmm. One of, I think, the the largest compliments we get from people sometimes is when they say, you know, we just feel comfortable here. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we want it to be. Again, I keep coming back to relationship. Like I, I want to build relationships with them because then they can see my life. I can be Jesus to them once they know me a little bit better and once I get to know them. My mission as a teacher is my mission field, I feel like is school. So um, some of my students live in my neighborhood. And so that's really fun because I get to see them and pursue just a, outside of school a relationship with them, which is really fun because, of course, you know, when you see a teacher outside of school, you're like a movie star or something. So that's just really, really fun to see them um, and just get to know their family as they're walking by. I think one thing for me is realizing we don't live in the giant house that is Pinterest-worthy in its decor, but we do live in a house where people feel welcome. And that's more important than anything. Mm -hmm. Isn't that cool? 75 invitations, 25 showed up. And uh, that's just, yeah, this is pursuing mission. All right? So that's what, that's what Christ wants us to focus on, is pursuing mission. But we're not alone in doing this. Remember I said we have the power and the help of the Holy Spirit. So come now to verse 7. Let's pick it up there. It said, John announced, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. 
I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One day, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptized him at Jordan River. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. The Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness. There he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals, and angels took care of him. You know, Jesus lived his life in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Jesus lived his life in dependence on the Holy Spirit. The question that we have to answer is, are we living, am I living a life in dependence on the Holy Spirit? If you go back and look at the life of Jesus, he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was baptized, excuse me, and anointed for ministry by the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 9, 14 says that it was by the power of the eternal spirit that he was crucified. Romans 8 says he was raised to life by the Spirit. Our Lord's whole life, God the Son, was dependent on God the Spirit. Now, if Jesus lived that way in his humanity, how should you and I live? Dare we try to live any other way than to be fully surrendered and yielded to the Spirit? You know, it says in John that the Father set the, so- the, the, Father set the Son aside to save us. And the Holy Spirit was involved in that because the Holy Spirit is the one who conceived Christ into the womb of the Virgin Mary to fulfill the will of the Godhead. In the same way, the Holy Spirit sets us aside in Christ to fulfill God's will on this earth. And so when you accepted Christ into your life, you received the Holy Spirit, Romans tells us in chapter 8. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.18 that we should not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, be intoxicated with the Spirit, and keep on being intoxicated with the Spirit. That means keep on surrendering yourself to the Holy Spirit. John 16, Jesus says the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Paul tells us the Spirit gives us gifts for service. Paul tells us in Galatians 5 that that the Holy Spirit wants to bear the marks of Christ's love in our life. He wants to give us and help us with joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The Spirit teaches us. The Spirit helps us pray. The Spirit inspires us. You can't live life without the Spirit. But so many of us nonetheless do. When I was a kid, I'll tell this story because our students are in here, I had quite the imagination. I still do to this day. All right? And you know, without Nintendo and all those kinds of things that kids have today, you made up life as you went. And so my brother and I and my, my best friend at that time in about fifth grade, Harold, uh, we found this car uh, that was abandoned and not running. And one of the things we loved to do is we would get in that car and we would become spaceships in the car. We would become the rat patrol on, on you know, with our... Uh, armor and ready to go in the desert and fight the bad guys. We become, you know, truck drivers in that car. And the whole while, as we're doing this, we would pretend we had an engine running. In fact, we would sometimes even make the noises of the engine, right? 
And, you know, as an adult, you'd sit there and you'd laugh at that. Sitting in a car, pretending you got all this power, haven't even turned the car on. We're making it up as we go. A lot of times we treat God the same way. We're in the car. We've got all that power, but we're just going, <laughs> you know what I mean? We're just kind of operating on our own strength, almost imaginary, trying to do it ourselves. And it's, it, it must just sadden the heart of heaven to see that. Why don't you drive the car, turn it on, get the power, so to speak. Let the power drive you. Let God be in control. In order for that to happen, we've got to be surrendered to the Spirit. Most of you are sitting on some furniture in this building right now, aren't you? When you walked in, did you stand and look at it and worry it was going to hold you up? Did you have a debate with yourself? Should I sit here? Should I not sit here? No, you just sat down. You rested your whole body on that bench or that chair and haven't thought a thing about it until I just mentioned it now. So you're worried now. It's going to hold me up. In the same way, we need to transfer the weight of our lives to the Holy Spirit. We need to literally surrender ourselves to his presence. Our minds, our will, our emotion, our finances, our relationships, our worries, our fears, our joys, our hopes, our dreams. Just surrender it. Just give it to him every day like you sit in that piece of furniture right now. You're sitting on it. Just rest it in Christ so you can jot it down like this. By God's help, I aim daily, it's a daily thing, to reset, to reset my focus on Christ by surrendering my life to the control of the Holy Spirit. We'll leave it up there for a moment for you to write down if you want. In fact, last night I saw somebody taking pictures of the screen. That's the easy way to do it. Reset my life by surrendering every day to the Holy Spirit. Can I ask you a question, personal, rhetorical? Right now, right now in this room, are you surrendered to the Holy Spirit? Are you yielded to his presence? I want to motivate you. I want to give you a cause to want to be surrendered to God's Spirit. So come back to verse, <clears throat> verse 9 with me. Look what it says. It says, one day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. As Jesus came up out of the water... He saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. And you bring me great joy. You know, there's a mystery <clears throat> in the Godhead that I can't explain. How God is one and yet three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and the Trinity pours out unmeasurable love and pleasure and joy on each other. And yet Paul tells us in Philippians 2 and John tells us that Jesus was set apart and Jesus gave up his place of glory and he became human flesh and was born on this earth. But one of the things that I know that Jesus brought with him was this confidence that he was loved by God. He was loved by his father. One of the instances when we see that is over in John chapter 5, where Jesus is being harassed by some of the religious leaders. In the middle of the harassment, he talks about his relationship with the father. For instance, in verse 17, he says, My father is always working, and so am I. 
Verse 19 says, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. Jesus knew that his father loved him. And he lived in that confidence. I want to ask you a question. You ready? Do you believe that God loves you as much as he loves his son? Think about that. Do you believe that God loves you? Do you students believe that God loves you as much as he loves his son, Jesus? The answer to the question is absolutely he does. He gave his son for you and me. So he must love us as much as he loves his son. If he's willing for the pleasure, Paul told us, to give him up to have us in his family. That's an awesome thing. Not only am I chosen and have a purpose in life, not only does does the Holy Spirit come to be resident in my life, but God loves me immeasurably. In fact, the eminent theologian uh, N.T. Wright translates that phrase, you are my beloved son. He translates it to say this, you are my wonderful son and you make me very glad. You are my wonderful son, and you make me very glad. Can you hear God saying that to you? You're my wonderful daughter, and you make me very glad. You are my wonderful son, and you make me very glad. You're my wonderful child, and you make me very glad. Do you believe that? I think we struggle with that one. I think more often than not, we figure we make him very mad, not very glad. Because we all know ourselves. And after you've had a fight with your spouse or your kids or your parents, after you said or done something you know you shouldn't have said or done, it's hard to look in the mirror and think to yourself that God looks at you and says, you're my wonderful child and you make me very glad. But you are. You are. Because what makes, what makes God very glad about you is not your behavior. It's his son. It's what his son has done for you. That makes him very glad about you. If we believe that to make God glad, I have to behave a certain way, all we have now done is become Pharisees. Evangelical Phariseeism exists today. We fall back into it all the time. This idea that I have to keep earning God's love by how I behave. God is glad about you, not because of how you behave, but because of how his son behaved. He gave his life for you and me. And so our lives, our behavior, should be motivated by the fact that we are always loved unconditionally by God. Whereas oftentimes, we allow the negative side of things to motivate us. Oh, I was really bad today. I'll be better tomorrow. You know, I'm always down on ourselves. I'm miserable. I'm a rotten person. And, you know, all that may be true. <laughs> You may have failed, you may have really blown it, you may have said and done some really bad things. That's never going to be a spiritual motivator for you. And if it is, wow, you're messed up. Because see, in order for me to think that I have to behave to make God glad with me, I've got to benchmark my behavior against somebody. Now I'm competitive. That's what the Pharisees were. I feel better about me because I wasn't that bad. See what I'm trying to say? Or I have been so bad compared to how good you are, God doesn't want me. That is just warped, weird thinking. But we all fall into it. We all struggle with it. I'm here to tell you, you make God glad because of what his son Jesus did for you. 
And he just loves you unconditionally. Better to be motivated out of God's love for me than how I have behaved. That will cause me to behave better. You say, well, does that mean I can just misbehave if God loves me so much? Paul knew you'd ask that question, and so in Romans 6 he said, may that never be. (laughs) Grace does not exist so we can behave badly. Grace exists so we can behave well. But I want you to know you're loved by God. A man who's helped me more with this than anybody else, he's now passed away, was a Catholic priest named Brennan Manning. Now, Brennan had a bit of a controversial life, and so I don't agree with everything Brennan ever said or wrote. Did have him come and speak for us in California years ago. Got to know him on a personal basis, and um, not as well as many people did, but very influential in my life in his, in his speaking and his writing. And he wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. I, I just, if you haven't read it, I recommend that you do. The Ragamuffin Gospel. And in that book, he talks about the love of God, and he tells a story he talks about a, a, a priest in Detroit, um, a friend of his, Ed Farrell. And Ed Farrell, years ago, took a trip back to Ireland to see family. And when he showed up, it was his one living uncle's birthday. And so on the day of his 80-year-old uncle's birthday, they both got up before the crack of dawn, and they went for a walk around Lake Killarney. And then they stood side by side for like 20 minutes and watched the sun rise. Then after the sun had risen, they kept going on their walk. And Ed looked over and he saw this broad smile break out on his Uncle Seamus' face. He said, Uncle Seamus, he said, you seem very happy. And his 80-year-old uncle said, I am. And Ed said, well, Why are you so happy? And his uncle responded and said to him, because the father of Jesus is very fond of me. Don't you love that? Do you believe that? See, that's the issue. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the father of Jesus is just very fond of you? If you believe that, it will change your life. Brennan says if we believe that, it'll relax us. If we believe that, it'll bring us peace. If we believe that, it'll bring us joy. And if we believe that, it will change our whole perspective in our relationships toward others. If I can wake up every day and know that the Father of Jesus is very fond of me. Write this down. One way of saying it is, by God's help, I aim daily to refocus and remind myself daily That God loves me unconditionally and I make him glad because of Christ. Because of Christ, he'll change your life. We've got one more. We've got one more. Heaven. Let's talk about heaven for just a moment. It's briefly mentioned here in chapter 1, verse 9. One day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and John baptized him in Jordan River. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. The heavens split apart. The curtain was pulled back. And it happened several times in Jesus' life on earth. Another time we see it is the transfiguration. We're like heaven breaks in on earth. And we see this, this other dimension. Quoting again from N.T. Wright, the theologian, he says, Heaven in the Bible often means 
God's dimension behind ordinary reality. It's more as though an invisible curtain right in front of us was suddenly pulled back. So that instead of the trees and flowers and buildings, or in Jesus' case, the river, the sandy desert, and the crowds, we are standing in the presence of a different reality altogether. A good deal of Christian faith is a matter of learning to live by this different reality even when we can't see it. Sometimes at decisive and climactic moments, the curtain is drawn back and we see or hear what's really going on. But most of the time, we walk by faith, not by sight. Here's the point. Generally speaking, generally speaking, heaven doesn't pull its curtains back and reveal itself to us. But it doesn't make God any less near. He's always with us. David said, though I walk the valley of shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. And so we need eyes of faith, so to speak, to see behind the curtain and live this life in light of the fact that the unseen world is just as real and all around us. But there are those moments when God breaks through. I want to tell you quickly about one of those moments in my life. Many years ago when Marsha and I had just gotten married and we were contemplating coming back to Minnesota to go to school to finish my degree, I thought I'd go into medicine and we'd left to go back to Michigan to do that. And we didn't have two nickels to our name. And I didn't have a job yet. And it was like a total step of faith. And I remember going into the uh, spare bedroom of the little trailer we lived in and getting down on my knees and just sensing a need for God, I began to seek God and I began to examine my life, repent of any sin and just earnestly try to, as, the old, as they used to say in the old days, lay hold of God. And somewhere in that time with God, in that little room, all of a sudden it became so incredibly bright in the room. I didn't see Jesus, I didn't see angels, there was no music. But I just sensed this glorious presence. It was just so bright in there. And, and it, it had a profound effect on me, a profound sense of God's presence. And I know that's true because when I walked out of that room, when I was done praying and, and I finished my time there and I walked out of the room, I could literally feel the darkness. It was like going from heat to air conditioning. And I just knew that was a special place. That was a special moment. Haven't had that happen very often in my life. But in those few moments when it has happened, it has served as a reminder that God is just as present and just as much with me, even when the curtains haven't been pulled back. But every once in a while, it gives us a boost in our faith that way. So you might want to jot this down. By God's help, I aim daily to refocus my faith on the awareness of the heavenly realm as I live my life for Christ in this world. You know, it's an old saying that I would hear when I was growing up. They would say, ah, she's so heavenly minded, she's no earthly good. <laughs> I don't think that's such a problem these days. I think we're so earthly minded and it gets us in trouble. How do I live in this life and keep my eyes on Christ? By focusing every day on the fact I've got a purpose in this life. On the fact I have the Holy Spirit living in me. On the fact God is very fond of me. And on the fact that heaven 
is just one breath away. Isn't that wild? Isn't that good? Frozen, chosen. Isn't that good? Yes. I mean, can't we like celebrate something? Amen. As we go into this year and there's a lot of bad news out there, oh my goodness. Don't forget the good news. Let's pray. Father God, we just, we want to start this year on the right foot, Lord. We don't want to start with our hopes based on this world and based on politics and based on Hollywood and based on economics and uh, all the things, Lord, that we try to extract hope from that fails so miserably. Lord, we want to refocus on you. We want to refocus on the fact that we've got a purpose as long as we have breath here in this life. We want to refocus on the presence of your spirit and surrender to him. We want to refocus on the fact that you're so fond of us and we want to refocus on the fact that heaven is so close. Hebrews says, Father, your word says that heaven is cheers for us cloud of witnesses cheering us on oh god do we step into your glory thank you for this good news in jesus name amen